0: We have a link between noise exposure and an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. If you're exposed to relevant noise levels for prolonged periods of time, there is an increased risk for high blood pressure, heart attacks, and stroke.
1: Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well this is the first in another series of interviews from Ted Med, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. We're in La Quinta out in the desert near Palm Springs in California, and I'm excited that we're starting with this interview because I suspect at this conference some people this week will be depriving themselves of sleep, or perhaps there will be something that deprives them of sleep, and dare I say it, a noisy hotel room could be Culprit. As I've mentioned many times before, I consider sleep to be right up there with a good diet and exercise as certainly one of the key pillars of healthy living or at least a lifestyle that promotes longevity. I'm joined by Matthias Basner, who has spent the past two decades studying the effects of noise on sleep. Matthias is Associate Professor of Sleep and Chronobiology in Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania and President of the International Commission of Biological Effects of Noise. Uh, Professor Basner, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Let's break down your job description first of all. Associate Professor of Sleep and Chronobiology in Psychiatry.
0: What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I mean sleep means just you know what everybody is doing for like a third of his or her lifetime and the chron- chronobiology asp- aspect is that our ra- our life is organized around the earth uh, evolving around its own axis in uh, about 24 hours so there's a light and a dark period and uh, every life form on earth has you know adapted to that and uh, we as humans typically sleep during the night not always in a 24-7 society, which is a big problem when I mean, we're talking about sleep and sleep deprivation, but that's when we humans typically sleep and we're uh, awake uh, during the light period, uh, and there are all sorts of diseases that can be um, related to, to that 24-hour light-dark cycle.
1: So it isn't just what we do, there are, let's say, greater powers at work, the circadian rhythm that's affecting
0: our sleep, clearly. Absolutely, yeah. So, we, we have a circadian pacemaker uh, in our uh, brains uh, that is secreting certain hormones. Actually, uh, one of the most important ones is melatonin. Uh, that, uh, you know, in the evening, uh, this, this hormone is being secreted. It helps us fall asleep and it uh, helps us stay asleep, and it triggers many important mechanisms. Uh, this is what many people don't understand. And actually, you know, 150 years ago, researchers also thought that sleep is a very passive mechanism. Basically, everything is shutting down. Nothing is happening. We're conserving energy. And quite the contrast is true. Uh, Sleep is a very active mechanism. Many things are happening during sleep, many of them exclusively during sleep. We need those things happening and uh, one of the most intriguing theories to me at this point, and there's more and more uh, evidence for that theory, is that we're sleeping uh, to allow for brain plasticity. So the idea is that we're, I mean, there's, there's only so much room in our head, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a bone, it's a skull, you know, it, it can't like expand or anything. So, and basically, we're gathering new information during the day, during the wake period, we're making that translates into making new neuronal connections, right? These are formed. And, uh, but then there has to be a period where we actually, you know, compare that new information to things we've already learned in the past and make a decision. Is this important information? Do we want to keep and strengthen this neuronal connection? Or is it really not important and we build it back and make room for new experiences during the next day? But in order to be able to compare the new experiences to past experiences, we need to shut off the environment. This is uh, very likely one reason why we have to sleep and why we're sleeping. What we, we're using that sleep for is to actually you know, gain new insights and strengthen these these uh, uh, new synapses that have been uh, formed uh, during the wake period and make room for the next day so we're kind
1: of consolidating memories and maybe getting those memories short-term longer-term memories all in perspective and almost indexing them uh, exactly as we go
0: yeah i mean one nice analogy is like from the computer it world is that uh, we're basically uh, writing from the temporary memory to the hard drive Where we store it and have it available for, for, you know, for the future and can, can recall that, that information
1: so sleep we agree is crucially important and one of the things that disturbs our sleep is noise extraneous noise and noise i work in sound and it is all around us all of the time and sometimes we are oblivious to the noise because we get so used to it before you walked into this room just arrived here i wandered around trying to find a, a good place to do the recording shutting off air conditioning and that kind of thing that can interfere with the sound or just not make it as as good as it should be but i'm attuned to that others simply wouldn't notice these sounds now the sound of air conditioning obviously isn't too damaging to us hopefully but maybe it can be at night and if i'm trying to sleep in a hotel room it's usually the number one thing that's that's likely to disturb me so the question is how damaging and, and how disturbing are these noises on a scale? that There's air conditioning and then there's, there's chattering and, and shouting and there's the pneumatic drill outside. Let's start with how much we can actually cope with and, and get by to the point then that it becomes damaging.
0: Where should we start? So I, I think you made a very important point, and that is that humans truly do habituate to some of the environmental stressors. The thing is, though, that only works to a certain degree. Uh, for example, we have done studies in the lab and in the field on the effects of, of traffic noise on sleep. And in the lab, what you always observe is that the first night is horrible. I mean, people will, uh, or research subjects will wake up with a very high probability to these noise events that are new to them. And that kind of makes, is biologically plausible. Because what our auditory system does, it kind of has a watchman function. And it's constantly monitoring our environment for threats, even while we're sleeping. I mean, we're basically unconscious while we're sleeping. The eyes are closed. We're not seeing anything. So this is a really crucial system. And from an evolutionary perspective, it was very important, right, if there's, like, danger approaching, that it would arouse us and wake us up and get us on our feet again so we can run away and, and seek shelter. That is a It's a very important and good mechanism. But that, then what we see is, you know, we did like studies 13 consecutive nights, always playing back like kind of the same noises and that people would habituate over these 13 nights. I mean, at some point, the brain basically learns. So this is, this is a noise and I've, I've encountered that before. There was really no danger associated with it. And then, you know, that reaction probability goes down. So we do habituate to a certain degree. But what we also found is that if you go into the field, Like, for example, people living close to an airport that have been living there for 10 years or so. Uh, Obviously, that habituation is there. The reaction probabilities, the awakening probabilities are much lower than compared to a laboratory study, but they're still reacting. It means that they never habituate completely. And also, there's differences, like these really full-fledged awakenings where we regain consciousness and wake up. That's something that we habituate a little better, too, than the cardiovascular arousals that we see. So the surges in heart rate and blood pressure, that's something where we uh, habituate to a much lesser degree, too. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that that habituation can be a bad thing, too. You mentioned it, that we basically don't realize anymore the constant degree of noise pollution. Uh, Four years ago, I attended a noise conference in Japan and uh, even Tokyo was a very quiet city. It was astonishing to me. But this was this was in Nara. It's like a World Heritage Site. It's super quiet. And then, you know, a week later, I returned uh, to the United States and entered the airport, and really a wall of sound hit yeah. me. It was amazing. And, you know, we, we simply don't realize anymore this constant degree of noise pollution that we're exposed to and how much we could profit uh, from more quiet spaces, so that that habituation is kind of you know it's a good thing on the one hand, but it's also bad in the sense that we are you know don't realize these environmental stresses anymore. And the same thing is true for sleep, by the way. So we believe that um, th- one of the reasons why the society is chronically sleep sleep depriving itself is because we don't realize anymore how well we could feel if we only got more sleep. We are used to this shitty state of, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, like uh, foggy brain, not not performing really well. And then we try to, you know, fight that with caffeine and drink like 15 cups of coffee a day. But that's not really it. I mean, there is no replacement for sleep. The only thing that gives you the recuperation we need is sleep itself. And that
1: is the issue, isn't it? That it's almost a vicious circle for a lot of people that they become used to being deprived of sleep and then find things like lots of coffee to cope with it. And that becomes the status quo and and on you go. But it's a spiral circle that, that's exactly. heading Exactly,
0: and we know very well that caffeine itself is influencing sleep. So And this is exactly the vicious cycle that you mentioned. So they're drinking coffee until late in the evening, and then they can't really fall asleep. Their sleep will be less consolidated and less restful. So guess what they have to do the next day? Drink more caffeine, right? And, you know, usually in the form of coffee, of course. So, yeah.
1: So how do we cope with this? Obviously, and you've made an important point, that uh, it is essential that we can be woken up by certain sounds, the sound of an emergency. Let's say, well, some people want to be able to hear the phone at night in case it's something that they need to pay attention to. But then there are other sounds that we could actually eliminate from our lives and not miss them. So where would you suggest that we start?
0: I think one... One major problem in this whole thing is that we are really unconscious when we're sleeping. So, uh, again, an example, we did these laboratory studies on the tra- effects of traffic noise on sleep. And many of the research subjects would wake up in the morning and basically say, Oh, I had a wonderful night. You know, I, I, I fell asleep right away. I never really woke up during the night. Um, so they felt great. or they, they thought they had a great night. Of course, we had you know all these electrodes on them and we measured their, their, their EEG, like their brain waves and their muscle tone and ECG and everything. And we would, we would see these, oftentimes, these numerous awakenings in a severely fragmented sleep structure. Uh, so these were too short for the subjects to regain waking consciousness and to remember them in the next morning but they may nevertheless have a profound impact on how restful the sleep is, right? So I think that is one major problem. That's also a problem of the studies that only use like a questionnaire to ask about, you know, noise-induced sleep disturbance because we're just simply often not aware of these uh, noise-induced sleep disturbances. And that may be also a reason why many people don't pay a lot of attention, you know, to their sound environment in their bedroom.
1: I wonder if it's because people are just resigned to the fact that, or they feel as if they just can't change it. It is what it is, that they can't change the noise in the street outside their house. They can't change the ambient noises that they get used to in in the house. Or is maybe that isn't the case. If we thought about it, maybe we can make changes. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment.
0: I guess it's a uh, matter of priority. So this is what I will you know, say during my TEDMED talk is if you're actually looking to rent or buy a new place, make low noise a priority, right? I mean, visit the property during different times of the day, talk to the neighbors about noise, you know, make that really a priority. I mean, I almost bought a house and then I said, you know, I'm a noise and sleep researcher. I cannot buy this house. It's right next to this busy road, right? <laughs> There are some simple things you can do, especially road traffic noise. You know, if you have a house, you can move your bedroom to the quiet side of the house. So your own building shields you actually from the road traffic noise. Uh, In in many big cities, there are these, you know, architectures where you have like Houses all around, and then you have the the inside of these block of houses is basically there is no traffic, nothing, so people can move their bedrooms to that that they're facing the inside, and that that helps greatly.
1: I tell you that one of the best hotel rooms I ever had, and I probably managed to get the room because no one else wanted it. was It was right in the middle of the. It had no windows. It was actually a room with no windows, just happened to be right in the middle of the building. I had the best sleep. Because, as you say, you, you you shielded from this is I think it was a hotel in Sydney in Australia, and it, it was it was quite a noisy area, but it was it was shielded from everything, and it, it was wonderful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We just have to make it a priority. I mean, a, a quiet bedroom. I mean, we as sleep researchers and in sleep medicine, we talk about good sleep hygiene. So you know the room should be dark. It should have the right temperature, not too hot, not too cold, and. Um, A quiet bedroom is certainly one of the cornerstones of that sleep hygiene.
1: And presumably, I mean, I use earplugs. I use wax earplugs.
0: Certainly, yeah. I mean, especially if it works for you. This is the thing about uh, sleep hygiene. We often say you know whatever floats your boat so if if that works for you then then great and if if it's something that is not outrageous like if somebody would tell me i I need to drink six bottles of beer every night to fall asleep i would say okay this is clearly not a good thing right but if it's other issues (laughs) if it's things like that many people can not tolerate earplugs because you all of a sudden you know hear your bowel movements and your heart beating and uh some people can tolerate that, but if that works for you it's 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 perfect. Hmm. Now is there so we talk
1: a lot about longevity, is there good science and, and evidence that we are perhaps knocking a few years off our lives if we don't pay attention to this area of our lifestyle?
0: I don't know whether it's a few years. <laughs> But you know the research is actually becoming more and more conclusive in the sense that, first of all, we have a link between noise exposure and an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So there's more and more studies, many of them really large studies, some of them prospective in nature, showing that... Uh, if you're exposed to relevant uh, noise levels for prolonged periods of time, that the, there is an increased risk for high blood pressure, heart attacks, and stroke. And uh, interestingly, many of the new studies actually looked at what about daytime noise exposure or nighttime noise exposure, and actually the association to the nighttime noise exposure is much stronger than to the daytime noise exposure. And I mean some of them some of that makes sense because we're actually all these studies calculate kind of like noise exposure for your address and we're much we much we're much more consistently at home during the night than during the day right I mean you could be at work and you know the noise that happens at your house doesn't even apply to you so that's certainly one thing but we we truly believe That if you have these noise-induced sleep disturbances over months and years, then that is something that is contributing to the increased risk for cardiovascular disease. It's like kind of on the path of causality from the noise exposure to the uh, negative health outcome
1: yeah exactly so perhaps more accurately rather than talking in terms of number of years that it could be knocking off our lifespan it is a contributing factor uh, as you say cardiovascular disease in in particular to the the, the conditions that could ultimately reduce our certainly health span the number of years that we have optimum health
0: yeah, and there is there are more studies coming out now, and it's very early for them. So you know we can't really say anything about causality at this point. But um, researchers are you know taking more interest in other health outcomes, so cancer, diabetes, obesity. There are like, uh, you know, a handful of studies actually looking at the relationship between noise and these diseases, and they do find uh, positive associations as well, positive in the sense that the higher the noise level, the, the, the more often you see the, uh, those diseases. And that, you know, also uh, makes sense. We kind of still have like the general stress model behind uh, how noise affects us. So uh, noise can be stress, especially if, if we have little or no control over it, and the body excretes stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, and they all lead to changes in you know the composition of our blood and our blood vessels, and you know so the, uh, and you know the immune system may be affected as well, and uh, that's why we think that it may not only be cardiovascular disease, but actually other health outcomes that could also be affected by the noise exposure. I mean, overall, if you look at the disease risks, they are relatively minor. So if you compare like 10 dB increase in noise exposure with somebody who is smoking, then it is like, you know, we're typically in the area like 5 to 10% increase in disease risk per 10 decibels. 10 decibels is basically twice as loud, uh, which is not, it's not nothing. It's, 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 It's not as major though. However, it's still a major public health problem in the sense that noise is so ubiquitous. and So many people are exposed to relevant noise levels, and that actually makes it a problem. You know, if it were only like 100,000 people across the globe, you say, okay, you know, it's not a big deal. But because there's so many people, and we talked about it, right, it's like this constant noise pollution yeah. we're all exposed to. But when you
1: add up all of these factors that can have a negative impact on us, it is still significant because there isn't one thing that is going to determine our longevity it it is lots of different things and I started by mentioning diet and exercise and sleep and there are plenty of other factors as well that go into living a long and and healthy life and and clearly this is a a key part of that
0: right and uh, it's also often that you know some of these factors may actually be additive Oftentimes in cardiovascular disease risk, you know, there are these charts you can look up, you know, your blood pressure and your age and your, your, your sex. And then you can say, you know, is it, what is my risk to die in the next 10 years of a heart attack or something? So if you only have one risk factor, it's typically not a big problem. But if you like accumulate a number of risk factors, then they actually may act together and may have a, a much more severe consequence than if you have a single risk factor. And of course, you know, noise... Also, is it depends on the socio-demographic structure of the area. I mean, noise is definitely a factor for for people choosing houses, and I, I said earlier, it should be right. So, if, if there is a, a, a very noisy area right next to a train track or super close to an airport, that you know the the real estate prices will be lower, and it it, it attracts people from a with with lower income and with a from a lower socio-demographic. Um, uh, stratum of the of the um, of society, and you know they may actually already have behaviors that predispose them to more negative health outcomes, and then the noise on top of that, right? So, is there
1: a kind of noise, or is there a time of day when noise is actually good for us, and that we should be absorbing sounds? And we start by mentioning the circadian rhythm. I wonder, as we get up in the morning, if it's actually good to hear the birds chirping outside and the sound of the coffee machine and maybe your favorite music on the radio or whatever you absorb at that time of the day? Does it Does it start? Is it a, a point in the circadian rhythm that's actually positive for us in terms of starting the day?
0: Potentially, yes. I mean, the number one, we call that Zeitgeber. It's a, it's a signal that is synchronizing us to the 24-hour day. The, the number one signal is light, daylight. Uh, but there are other... Um, Uh, uh, stimuli, like, for example, a regular meal that can synchronize us to the 24-hour day. So in in the same way, I could think of noise as the same thing. Like if you always have like those birds, uh, you know, uh, chirping in the morning, that that could uh, somewhat synchronize you. But uh, I don't know. uh, Light is still the number one one source. But I I think you made a good point in the sense that I think we have to remind ourselves uh, of how noise is defined. It's actually defined as unwanted sound. And so there's a, a physical component to that, which is the sound level. But then there's this psychological component, and that's the circumstances that actually make the sound unwanted. So you you mentioned listening to music. You know, if if you like the music and it's loud, it it's not noise to you. You're actually enjoying yourself. And actually there may be mechanisms happening. You know, you're like... You're excreting, you know, um, endorphins, and you know it makes you happy, and it's actually a very positive response. So again, it's not necessarily just the loudness, but it's really the circumstance. I mean, my boilerplate example is a rock concert, and you know the person attending the concert, it is 100 decibels. It's not noise to that person. You know, it's it's they like the band, they paid 100 bucks for the ticket, and you know it's not noise. But somebody living three blocks away from the concert hall trying to read a book cannot concentrate because of the music. The sound pressure levels are much lower. But, you know, this stresses that person out and that may trigger reactions that in the long run uh, can have health consequences. So, um, yes, I think that, uh, first of all, I mean, I don't know whether you heard about these really dead rooms where you you have no sound whatsoever. I I love them, doing this kind (laughs) of thing. I love that kind (laughs) of room. It's perfect. You love that? Many people are creeped out by it. Because, I mean, sound is something that belongs to our natural environment. And actually, um, you know, when I give a presentation, I have this chart. Basically, you know, showing you the decibel levels and then noise on the left, quiet on the right. There are things that generate the same sound pressure level, but that one situation experiences experience is noise and another situation it's like pleasant, like you're on vacation and you're next to a mountain river and it's making 70 decibels, but you know, you enjoy it greatly, right? So, uh, really, context matters a lot. Well, I I did an
1: episode uh, quite a while ago with this podcast at a, a university. We were wandering around trying to find a room where there wasn't too much noise to make the recording. And we ended up in this little cubicle. It was kind of a sensory deprivation unit for whatever studies were happening. And it was just like that. It was totally dead it was a little bit like a, a very well-constructed studio right but from for, for what i needed to do for this it was just it was just perfect and it actually reminds me and where i live is out in the countryside it's actually very very quiet and people visitors will come to the house and if they stay overnight will say they actually had difficulty sleeping because it was so quiet if <laughs> they're used to living in a city i of course love it and i'm very used to it and and I'm easily woken, pretty much sleeping anywhere else apart from home.
0: right. it's It's again this you know uh, humans habituating to to their environment. We had this it's an anecdote, but it's somebody living close to a railway track, and actually that person told us, you know typically there's a five thirty a m train, and one day that train was not coming, and it the subject woke up and said, you know... It was Where's because, the train? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was unusual. Something that, you know, something's not right about my environment, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. I've heard that before, too, that people just say this is too quiet. Uh, I mean, I the hotel room I have here was like so quiet last night i really enjoyed it mm, that's, that's good now you mentioned music just backtracking a little bit to music and of course we wouldn't
1: normally describe music as noise noise generally has a negative connotation music should exactly. have a positive connotation we again did an episode a few weeks ago about the benefits of music and creating music and taking part in music and listening to music for people with dementia with Alzheimer's, it does something in the in the brain, in the in the personality that uh, just brings them back to life. Whereas otherwise, they just weren't in the moment. And there's, there's something about music, and, and, and in terms of triggering old memories, especially, I think that's clearly very positive for us.
0: Right. I mean, you know, the memories that you generate, they're all like associated the, to the different sensory inputs. Right. What 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 did you feel at the time? What did you see at the time? What did you hear at the time? So it makes good sense to me that, you know, this this can actually be a trigger to bring back memories to people that they otherwise would not be able to recall.
1: Hmm. I often ask people, we focus on longevity based on what you understand, what you've learned from your studies and what you do every day. And you say you made a, a home purchase choice decision on the basis of, of what you do. So with your longevity in mind, with your health span in mind, what do you do in your own life just to to nurture that aspect of of what you're doing and uh, perhaps looking ahead to the decades in the future when you're 70 80 years old that something you're doing now that might actually help you get there
0: well I mean it's easy for me because my my main areas of uh, re- research interest are sleep and noise and then the, the third one is spaceflight but you know I'm not gonna get up there anymore <laughs> But I, I definitely try to get at least seven hours of sleep a night. It's actually a funny thing. Uh, in the United States, the National Institute of uh, Health is one major funding agency for health-related research. And a couple of years ago, they approached the Sleep Research Society and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, who are like two major players in the in the sleep research and sleep medicine field. And they said, you know what, guys, we funded you for so many years and you still cannot uh, tell us how much sleep you know the average person needs and it was a little embarrassing so they got together and they reviewed all the literature and got all these experts together and they basically then came to the conclusion that you know uh, the uh, an, an average adult needs 7 hours per night on a regular basis to promote optimal health and longevity as you say and of course you know we're all different. There's individual variation. Some people truly do need eight. Some people truly do get along with six. If somebody tells you he or she only needs four, I wouldn't believe that necessarily. Or you know, these are like, oftentimes businessmen who think you know sleeping is a weakness, but then they you know fall asleep on the way to the airport. They they sleep on the plane, so they get their sleep in the end as well. So I'm certainly, but personally, I'm trying to do that. You know. Um, Getting enough sleep on a chronic basis. Picking up on that
1: fra- on that phrase that you use, that sleep is a weakness, and, and I hear that a lot. And it's it's, it's alpha males, alpha females, even um, it doesn't really matter what sex you are. That people seem to think, especially business people, that uh, you know, oh, I can go without sleep, and maybe they look at prime ministers and presidents who tend to boast about how little sleep. They get. I'm thinking of Margaret Thatcher and, and Donald Trump doesn't sleep very often. Very different characters, but uh, <laughs> some people seem to, to to wear it as a badge of honor that they don't sleep very much, and it, it's it's a mystery to me how they can exist like
0: that. Right, and again, you know, perhaps they. And this is a, another thing we found out in our research that it really doesn't doesn't matter how you distribute the sleep over the 24 hour period. We did like studies. Uh, looking at, you know, one large consolidated sleep period over the night, or if you like do a nap during the day and then a less long period during the night. And we varied all these combinations. And in the end it was total sleep time that predicted performance during the day. So it didn't really matter whether you had like one long period or like two, you know, one eight hour period or two, four hour periods, as long as you got the same amount of sleep. Um, So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, It is seen as a weakness, and I agree, you know, we don't know how much better our politics could be if these politicians only would get enough sleep and if they wouldn't make those decisions at 3 a.m. in the morning in a conference room, right? Because there, there have been studies showing really that that this this saying sleep over it makes a lot of sense. We gain new insights while we're sleeping. There have been very clever studies, basically giving people a task to do, uh, you know, just summing up numbers, and then at the last column you have to had to put down the sum. And there was actually a very easy pattern to it, and uh, you could once you had that insight, you were basically done with the task right away. So they basically. Uh, put those people who didn't get that insight, half of them got enough sleep, the other half did not get enough sleep, and many more of those who had enough sleep had that insight in the next morning. Mm. It just tells you our brain is, is still working on problems uh, during the night. It's making that comparison to you know, your past experiences, and then we wake up and we truly have new insights. So that's, so why, that's why the
1: phrase, I'm going to sleep on that, yes, is so beneficial. absolutely,
0: do that. You yeah. know? And you're probably, you know stupid things you would have done on the night before you say you know you get a totally different perspective on it i say you know it's a good thing that i didn't send that letter well, i was just going to say didn't resign from don't my hit job.
1: send late at night <laughs> yes or even tweet <laughs> in the middle of the night just briefly and i don't want to delve into this too deeply or well, maybe i would like to but i don't think we have time you mentioned space and i know a lot of your work is associated with with sleep and and uh, space have you been in space yourself
0: (laughs) no 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 okay you just said
1: something that suggested that you might have been my wife would never allow right okay (laughs) but sleep for for astronauts clearly is 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 a key factor and you've been looking at that absolutely
0: yeah no uh, sleep is a key factor and high levels of cognitive performance constantly in astronauts is a is a key factor for mission success I mean, it's such a hostile environment and, you know, a tiny mistake can have, you know, severe consequences. You can lose not only the crew, but that, you know, multi-billion dollar equipment that you sent up uh, into space. So it's kind of interesting because we did a very large study in 24 astronauts doing six month missions on the International Space Station and basically confirmed what other studies had shown before, that astronauts are not... Getting enough sleep on a chronic basis. Yeah, we talked earlier about these seven hours that you need. So the average for astronauts is six hours, and you know there are often nights where they only get four or five, and so they're basically chronically sleep deprived. Um, the main reason for that, what we believe, is the same reason that we see on earth is just the workload can be immense up there. So they have to do all these maintenance tasks. They have to do these research projects and, uh, you know, a researcher will schedule them for an hour and then something goes wrong. And all of a sudden it took three hours and they're, you know, and then instead of, you know, ending the day at 6 PM, they ended at 9 PM. And then they're just like humans on earth. They actually went up there to, you know, look out the window and see earth. So they don't go to bed right away. Right. They wind down and they look out the window and, 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 you know, chat and whatever. And then it's like 1 a.m. before they go to bed. And, you know, that's how they lose their sleep. Interestingly, uh, the Russians did a simulated mission to Mars. It was a so-called Mars 500 project. And we were part of that as well. And we we measured sleep with little, you know, Fitbit-like devices and had them do performance tests. And it looked completely different there. There was an initial hectic phase where they actually lost some sleep, but then it was basically getting boring for them. You know, it was always the same task; they'd done it over and over again. You know, they were very you know proficient in doing these tasks, and all of a sudden they started sleeping longer. And uh, when they were awake, they were also moving less. When they were awake, it's kind of you know that I don't know winter sleep kind of state. Um, so the the problems that we will be facing. Uh, when we send people to Mars, may, may be completely different ones. We have to keep them uh, engaged and uh, give them something meaningful to do on their journey to Mars. I mean, once they're there, you know it's all very hectic and there's a lot going on. But getting there is basically you know sitting on a train and looking out <laughs> the window, right? Uh, and there was also one subject that was not in train to the 24hour day anymore. So that subject was running on a 24hour rhythm. So every 12 days it would be the biological night for that subject. And the biological day for the rest of the crew. And of course, that's nothing that you want. So uh, that was one of our main conclusions that actually, you know, the lighting you put on that spacecraft, you can have to mimic the 24-hour day. You have to have bright blue light in the morning, and then you have to have, um, you know, uh, orange, red, uh, low-intensity light before they go to bed. And try to keep them in train to that 24-hour day, so they, as a crew, you know, are performing at their best when they have to. So life on Mars is, isn't
1: going to be straightforward. When no, we eventually get yeah, there. and
0: Mars also has a 24.6-hour day, so right. yeah. <laughs> which is possible for humans to entrain to, but yeah, still.
1: <laughs> Your work is fascinating.
0: Really enjoyed this. How can people follow what you do? I have to say, you know, I'm not a social media buff, so that's uh, one of the things. I try to keep out out of my stressful environment. Yeah, so I don't feel obligated to uh, you know Instagram another photo and a tweet another tweet. Right. Now it falls
1: right into the story we're talking about, doesn't it? It's it's another area of disturbance. Exactly. Yeah, so it's hate. so
0: hard to to concentrate on things today. So that's just another thing is a distraction
1: so we could go to your university website to check out your papers and absolutely if, if people want to delve a bit deeper into your yeah studies, no
0: google my name you'll find me
1: i'll google your name and, and put a few notes into the show notes for this okay
0: episode. great
1: Matthias spasner thank you very much indeed thanks for having me and uh, now i am reluctantly going to plug our social media contacts so if you want to go to the live long and master aging uh, website, you can do that at llamapodcast.com. That's double L A M A Podcast.com. And you can follow us in social media at Lama Podcast. Don't do it just before you go to bed, it might disturb your sleep. But otherwise, if you're nice and awake and it's during the day, check out <laughs> our social media and our website. Many thanks to everyone at TED Med for making this episode possible, and thank you for listening.